Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia. We are carried and broadcast courtesy of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers from Appalachia and talk about how the region influences and impacts their work. And we have a returning author who was with us a couple of years ago uh, to talk about his book then, which was called Nick, which was a prequel to the wonderful book, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He is back with a brand new book that you are absolutely going to want to put on your to-be-read pile. It is called Salvage This World. It is his sixth novel, and our guest today is author Michael Ferris-Smith. He is an award-winning writer whose novels have appeared uh, on several best-of-the-year lists, including Esquire, NPR, Southern Living, Garden and Gun, Book Riot, and numerous other outlets, and they've also been named to Indie Next, Barnes & Noble Discover, and Amazon Best of the Month selections. He's also written the feature film adaptations of his novels Desperation Road and The Fighter, which is titled for the screen as Rumble Through the Dark. And he currently lives in Oxford, Mississippi with his wife and daughters. And we're delighted to have back with us for the first time uh, in about a year and a half or two, uh, Michael Ferris-Smith. So Michael, welcome back to the program. So glad to have you back with us. Thanks, Elliot. Good to see you. Thanks for another invitation. Oh, my pleasure. So glad to have you back on. And uh, I had I had this book sort of circled on my uh, uh, list of, th- of books to read for about six months. And you were on my list of guests to have back on uh, because I really enjoyed our conversation about a year and a half or maybe two years ago now when uh, Nick came out. Uh, but you're back with this brand new terrific book called Salvage This World. And uh, But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, um, before we get into the book specifically, I just wanted to ask you, this being your sixth novel now, uh, as you look back at, at the process and how it has progressed and how things have, have happened, uh, how do you think you have changed and grown as a writer? And how do you feel like your 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 writing of novels has changed and grown with this sixth book, uh, maybe as as opposed to uh, your first book when you were starting out or midway through? How, how have you changed and evolved and how do you feel like your writing has changed and evolved? Oh, wow. That's a pretty big question. Good question, right? <laughs> right out of the gate. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, I think evolved is the right word because you have to keep evolving doing this, and every novel is such a different experience. Um, looking back at them. Uh, I, I can remember like kind of what I was going through, what I was dealing with at the time. Um, you know, rivers was so heavy on landscape. I really thought that would be the only time where I, I started a novel with landscape and uh, as this pretty much the central character. And then all of a sudden Blackwood happened and there I was with the kudzu covered Valley and all of that. And it, and that was my initial thought for that, that book. And, um, so it happened again, and then the the fighter happened, and the fighter, like I've told people before, almost I wrote it almost in a just a fever dream. Like I just started, I had the notion for Jack Boucher driving through the middle of the night, and I looked up like six or seven months later, 
and it, I was done with it. And I mean, I've never had that experience before. And I thought I would never really have such a fluid kind of consistent kind of energized writing experience again. And then all of a sudden salvage this world came along and I had a very similar experience as I did with the fighter. Although it was like three or four months of it kind of pouring out of me. I stopped um, when we were filming rumble through the dark and was on set for a few months through all that. And then I came back and it was another three months, you know, just right into it, right back down the road, almost just nonstop to the end of it. And, and so that happened again. So you're kind of in this constant state of flux, I think with it all. Um, I think, I think um, the way I have evolved is the willingness to let things be, you know, I think um, I was okay with missing a few months, stepping away from salvage this world for, you know, two or three months and didn't really feel any anxiety over it. Well, one, because something cool was happening, but two, because I realized I used to really stress out about missing a week of work or two weeks of work or three weeks of work. And then I realized that once you come back to it from whatever you've been doing, the novel's going to be different and probably better just because you've had time away and you've stepped away. You probably, you're going to make choices you didn't, you wouldn't have made if you'd have gone, stayed right on it. And so I've kind of learned to relax and just realize that the world will take care of itself and your imagination and the, the world you're building will be a, will be okay even if you have to be away from it for a little while. And uh, then I, I then the other thing I think um, I guess just because I hear it from a lot of people is I guess just stylistically I think I've continued to kind of uh, evolve whatever that means exactly. So you know I I've realized early on and I realize it now and it probably means more to me now even than it did in the beginning that being a writer and being an artist, you got to constantly be willing to evolve and become and challenge yourself and take chances and things like that. And, uh, you know, I hope that's, that's always going to be a part of what I'm doing or I won't be doing it anymore. The moment I'm not entertaining myself or feel like that I'm pushing myself or trying to, um, take those uncomfortable things that I'm coming up to and grasping them instead of backing away. The minute I start backing away, that's pretty much the minute I'll be, I'll be done. I won't be interesting anymore. At least for now, I hope I'm still interesting because I'm willing to let myself go down those paths that, um, the paths I couldn't see coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we all kind of have an idea of where, where we're going, but when I kind of come along and there's a path I didn't expect to find, um, and it's a little bit darker and it's a little bit more narrow and there's a lot more brush growing up all around it, but I think that's the one I got to try to get down. Um, to me that's part of the evolution and the maturation of it all constantly you know there's no end to it it's i think it's constant yeah i, I very well said and I, I know i've interviewed you before uh, i've listened to you talk before i've read a lot of interviews with you and one of the things uh i think it's safe to say you still love the writing and the creating and the storytelling process and and like you said just a minute ago you i've heard you say this you know when when it stops being interesting to you and fun for you and, and you lose that kind of desire to to tell those stories and and to maybe go into some uncomfortable places as a writer and a storyteller you're not going to do it so, so safe to say you've still got that 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 burning passion and desire yeah i think it is safe to say that and i'm happy about that you know i've been asked about it before like you know you're um you know you have a book coming out you have you know been lucky to have film this and that and the other like how do you keep going i'm like well i mean shit i love it and then like the fire's burning i don't i'm not gonna 
I don't question it, you know, really. It's just like I wake up every day and I feel it and I'm ready to go. And um, I hope it stays like that. You know, nobody knows what. Um, I mean, Tom Petty had a really interesting thing to say about it. One time when asked about his songwriting, people kept trying to ask him to kind of explain it and like his prolific nature and his just kind of need and passion to go back to it and go back to it, go back to it. He goes, I don't think about it because I feel like, I'm afraid if I try to explain it, it's going to go away. And I think <laughs> that really hit me right between the eyes when I when I heard him say that. This was in the big documentary uh, five or six years ago. I'm like, yeah, I just so I don't really think about it too much. I just, you know, want to be interested. And, you know, I think the last 75, 50, 75 pages of Salvage's World is about as excited as I've ever been. Um through the novel writing process, you know, and I hope that's a good sign for whatever the next thing is. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's dive into salvage this world. There's so much going on here. You've got some really, really great characters that are, that are hovering around the periphery of uh, uh, sort of the, a region of the Gulf coast that is really being hammered by hurricanes almost every few months. I mean, there, there's no hurricane season in your story. I mean, it's hurricane season year round. Every two to three months, this this region gets sort of sort of battered by terrible weather that just devastates the landscape and devastates the people that live there. But um, I wanted to ask you about uh, a couple of the characters that we, we get introduced to and kind of the storylines that are kind of involved with them and have you just kind of define uh, what some of these things are and some who these people are. And um, we, we meet a couple of characters. We meet a character named Holt um, who has a young son named Jace and is living with a, a woman named Jesse. Um, we'll get to them in just a second, but I love that that Holt is kind of a um, sort of a, a henchman or a footman for a uh, a traveling uh, spiritual revival group called the Temple of Pain and Glory, which I just love that name, and I think it's so apropos for for what they are and what they do. So tell us a little bit about the the Temple of the Pain Temple of Pain and Glory, and kind of what some of Holt's responsibilities are, being sort of a a henchman for them. Yeah. Um... You know, the temple, I mean, what's more fun than a outlaw traveling revival tent carnival thing, you know? I mean, that's that's uh, fertile ground, I think, for any writer or artist. And, you know, it kind of, the creation of the Temple of Pain and Glory came about because of the the way the region is, uh, the way you described. Um, you know, the thing about Salvage This World that very, felt very real to me um, was that, even though I think it's a little bit out from us 10, 15 years, I feel like it's coming. But I also believe you see, and I know you see, characteristics of it now in these little towns in South Louisiana, even like up into the Arkansas Delta, South Mississippi, where year after year there's fewer people there. And then a storm, you know, the storms come in and the rains, and there, there's fewer people after that. And there's almost no economy. There's very little infrastructure. It's just a very hard place to live. And the creation of the Temple of Pain and Glory came about largely because those are uh, people who get taken advantage of quite a bit. Um, and we see that uh, with, the, with the tent revival who shows up, throws up their tent, People come out, they hold hands, they pray, they sing songs. And if you give just the right amount of money and if you recite just the right prayer or do this or that just exactly right, these storms are going to stop and we're all going to be okay. 
And then the next day, the tent's down and it's on to another place and there's no consequence left for the for the line of bullshit that's been fed to these people who are really uh, willing to uh, try just about anything to make it stop and to make their lives better. You know, that doesn't involve packing up and moving. Um, and then to throw Holt into that mix, I have to say Holt was the character in the novel that surprised me the most because when he came onto the page for me on the first day. I thought he would be, you know, a henchman and like a very dark character that would be almost just very bad guyish all the way through. And his evolution into something else was, I think, part of the novel that I think was very kind of satisfying to me and interesting to me that that's how we see him and that how he that's how he's introduced. But that he's a, he's able to morph into something I think much more complex and and deeper. Um, as the story goes on. Very good. And you talked about sort of the the con part of the Temple of Pain and Glory and the con woman that is running this, who's just a terrific character. Her name is is Elser. Um, tell us a little bit about her and the relationship that she has over Holt, because I think I love how you set that up at the beginning, but then as the novel unfolds, you kind of paint in some backstory of, of Elsa and, 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 and her and her and kind of her philosophy and, and her relationship with Holt kind of behind the scenes too. So tell us a little bit about, about her. What is she up to as sort of the, uh, the head con woman of this, of, of this group and her relationship with Holt? Well, I think like a lot of con artists, she has this ability to be very convincing. And I think she has the ability to recognize people who are, um, loners, lost, you know, looking for something to hang on to, which Holt was when she finds him. So she knows how to talk to him, knows how to relate to him, um, knows how to kind of bring him in under her wing before, you know, really trying to sucker him into what's actually going on. Um, she's, you know, five foot five, 85 pounds, and everybody's just scared as hell of her. She just has this way of, of really um, manipulating people and intimidating people. Um, like I said, like a good, lot of good con artists do, she has a tremendous amount of faith and confidence in herself and what she's able to pull off. And I think as we see her more and more and as we see her sh her traveling show go on until, until she finally makes this tremendous proclamation about trying to find this child that can save us all, you know, it's very biblical, very biblical kind of promise. And it takes a tremendous amount of guts to uh, try to pull that off because it can go one or two ways. I mean, that, you're going to lose your audience there or you're going to really like stir the fire. And she has the ability to really stir the fire. But at the same time, too, like with Holt and others that she's brought in on it with her, I, I think she has the ability to... Um, make them feel like they belong there to it in some way, which then makes them feel like they're part of it or they have some ownership of it. So therefore it's just a way of life versus, you know, um, feeling like they're um, doing something that's kind of bankrupt, morally bankrupt, you know, they don't feel like they're looking at themselves in the congregation, uh, which um, I think is part of the trick. Yeah. Uh, she, she's a master, a master manipulator. I mean, I, I just loved reading, just reading the things that she said and how she said them, because 
you know, even though, you know, the, as a reader, you know, she's a con artist and, and you figure out kind of what the con is when you read the dialogue and what she says to Holt, like you're saying, it kind of offer, offering him uh, s- some uplifting moments or, or moments of, of encouragement through everything. Um, you think, wow, you know, I, you almost kind of believe it as the reader, even though you know who she is and what she's up to. You, and I found myself still believing what she was selling. I mean, she's just a master, almost like a sociopath. I don't know, maybe if that, maybe it's too strong of a word to label her, but she's just so, uh, just her dialogue and how she phrased things was just wonderful because it even had me thinking, oh yeah, you know, that does kind of make sense. I, yeah, I, I, okay, I'll, I'm going to stick around and stay on board uh, with, yeah. with, with what's going on. Were, were those... Is that hard to do when you have when you have such a uh, like a woman or character like her, like Elster, that is such a con and it is running such a big scheme and a scam? Is that hard to kind of make her seem human, but also keep the manipulation high? How, how did that go sort of building some of that into the story to where she seemed convincing, even though, you know, she's up to no good? Right. Uh, I don't know if hard is the right word. It's very challenging to make someone like that human. Um, it's very challenging to give them those characteristics that make them extreme and push them to the edge while keeping them in, keeping them in the realm of reality and believability. Um, I, I think that's what makes people and characters dangerous when they are extreme, they are, you know, standing at that, the edge of chance and risk and all these things. But at the same time, you believe them and you believe that you believe they could walk in the door and you believe they are there. And if you just were to cross them at a, at a bar or walking in and out of a gas station, they would nod and say hello to you and keep going because they're just also very real. But you know, when, when it's time to flip the switch, they have the ability to flip the switch. So I think that for me, how do you, and it's the same way in writing, like, People who are, uh, you know, um, the villains, you know, nobody's a villain all the time and nobody's a good guy or good gal all the time. People are complex. Like within a span of 60 seconds, you can be very conflicted and complex. And I think in writing a character like Elsa, it's very, it is challenging. And that to me, that's part of the fun of it all, too, is like when she sh- showed up. I knew what she was going to be, but also in the back of my mind is you have to find moments where she also becomes something else so that she's believable, but also um, she's not predictable. You know, you never know exactly what she's going to, you may think you know what she's about to say and what she's about to do, but you don't. And so that's the, that's the challenge. And that's the fun part for, for me. And typically in any novel, when, when somebody walks in and I, I know what they are right out of the gate and I know kind of what side of things they're on, it's like, okay, how are we going to get this person to be someone that at least at some moment, there's a, a moment of sympathy for them. And I think if you can give the reader that moment of sympathy or empathy or understanding for someone who you're not supposed to like, I think that's, uh, uh, I think you're, that's doing the heavy work. Absolutely. Yep. Excellent point. Excellent point. And and what one question I want to ask you, and then we'll 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 step away from the book for just a second. Um, despite the fact that Holt and Elser have this uh, interesting relationship, sort of almost like a, a shark sort of circling a, someone flailing in the water. You know, you it's always there, and you never know. Like you were saying, you never know when she's going to strike. Um, Holt kind of runs afoul of Elser because he steals a set of keys. 
um, from her. And that kind of propels the novel forward. Why does he steal those keys? And, and what, what, what is he trying to accomplish by, by doing so? Well, in the opening, on the opening page of the novel, when Jesse has to take off running with the baby, when she was uh, running through the ramshackle cabin they were in, just grabbing stuff and just taking off, running off into the woods, I, I remember the moment of, of writing it. And she, and I think the line is, and she and she grabbed the this, she grabbed that, and she grabbed the set of keys that he had told her to grab if she ever had to make a run for it. And I had got you know, done working for the day. And I kind of look back at that. I'm like, that could be something. Like I had no idea why, what they were or why she picked them up at the time. But I thought that, why would she have to grab a set of keys if she ever, and if he told, he kept telling her, if you ever have to make a run for it, be sure and grab those keys, mm-hmm. which we find out later. He's nabbed them from the temple of pain and glory um, a year before. And all I knew then when Colt was stolen was that they were important. All I knew that when Jesse grabbed them and took off running with them was that they are, were important. And I knew that there were people looking for them and hunting for them. And it took me about 225 or 30 pages before I realized what the keys were actually for. And uh, that, would, that we might actually use the word hard to get to talk about this become really leaning on the keys throughout the novel and really thinking about the keys throughout the writing of this book. And it really occurred to me that this better be something good because you have wrapped this whole thing around this set of keys. And if it doesn't pay off, then you have to start over with a new novel or at least yeah, pretty much a new novel. Um, for me, I think that really kind of goes back to the excitement and joyousness and discovery and, the feel of doing it is and the fuel and the passion. Like that was my, that was my hustle, you know, to make that seem real and make it pay off and to bring the reader that far. And then to have it be something that um, is worth 250 pages, uh, you know, um, probably more challenging making Elsa a little bit human was delivering those keys into the realm of, Oh, okay. That's why they were so important. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's really kind of the first time I've done that too, which was um, you know, part of the joy of writing this novel. Uh, I can't think just right off the top of my head where there was some apparatus that kind of p- pushed us through the story from start to finish because it is the second paragraph where the keys on page one, where the keys pop up. Um, I wish I would have known, you know, but actually it's probably – no, I actually don't wish I would have known. It, it was much better that way. Uh, me working to to get there and me me getting excited about it too, even though I had no idea where it was going or, or how it was going to play out. Um, and I think that's too, when Holt doesn't know what the keys are for, but he knows they're important because he's seen them and he's seen the maps that are marked up that go with them and he's watched them bounce around Louisiana and Mississippi, pretend, you know, doing these um holy revivals, tent revivals, but then he figures out that, wait a second, maybe we're not just doing it. Maybe these places aren't so random. And he kind of puts it together. There's the keys and there's these maps. So he doesn't know why the keys are important either. He just knows he snatches them and takes off, which that was me not knowing what they were for, just snatching them and taking off. You know, that's really like the mind of the writer right there, not having any clue, but knowing this is really important. 
um, we'll figure it out later and let your characters figure it out. You know, we're it speaking. Was, uh, yeah. Oh, good. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, it, was just, uh, it was kind of a cute, it was a big effort between me and Jess and uh, me and Jesse and, and Holt to figure that all out together. Yeah, that, that's great. And and, and I love I love that. I love how you phrased that, that figuring it out together, you know, that these characters are are working, you know, kind of with you and, and, and through your thoughts and 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 perspectives on that. I, I think that's terrific. I think that's terrific. And we're speaking with uh, author Michael Ferris Smith today on Now Appalachia. He's the author of the brand new book. It's just terrific. It's called Salvage This World. We'll come back and talk about the book uh, in just a second. But I want to ask you one thing, Michael, if we were to wander into your office or your study or your bedroom, room and we were to find uh the table where you keep your to be red pile uh what are some things that you're reading right now or what are some things you think everybody should be reading right now uh well truthfully i have more of a to be reread pile um to be honest i do a lot of rereading when i'm in the middle of something and i don't know i've been in the middle of something for a while uh for the last few years so it's a lot of rereading i can just reach over here now and apparently being lost is a theme for me because i'm rereading the lost nation by jeffrey lentz and i'm reading lost country the posthumous william yay novel also and i say rereading because like a lot of what i do is just opening up a novel that i know i've enjoyed or really love the language of just randomly to any page and just reading five six seven eight ten pages to keep um the language going through me and just the poet, the poetic nature of it going through me and like getting that steady barrage of images that I know that books I love can deliver. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's uh, probably not um, accidental. Both of those books are kind of, well, no, they're not kind of, they're characters wandering through these vast and dense and kind of dark and spooky landscapes, which think my characters have a tendency to do that too um so you know the fact that i've read these books and then kind of i'm reading them again uh, i think certainly just continues to feed that part of me excellent and how how is your writing and reading life balanced uh that you, you could apply this to when you're working on a novel or when you're not but you know how does your day divided up between between writing and reading and, and I know you're a, a father and a husband and you have children and have those responsibilities too. How does a, how does a day in your life balance out when you're either, you know, working on a project or you're thinking about a project or maybe when you're not working on a project, how does your sort of reading and writing day get divided up uh, around all those other things that you have to do? Uh, yeah. My, my schedule for the past, I don't know, years now, I'm trying to think back to when it kind of started this way. And I have to say it probably around, 2011 or 2012 when my children were little um i've always been the um the car the delivery to daycare and school so it kind of hit me you know i was teaching full-time throughout up, up until just a couple of years ago too and it, it really hit me like if you're ever going to get anything done you really have to set a schedule and so i would take the girls to daycare or school and then I had to have a writing place outside of the house and I would go right to it first thing in the morning. And it would be the thing that I did before anything else. And I really love that rhythm of, of the morning before you get distracted by, you know, half having to be daddy later or running errands or doing this or that and other, or having to go teach or get the car fixed or whatever the hell 
you got to do. So that's still, that's still the way I do it. I mean, I still, it's, it's up in the morning, get people to where they're going. And I go right to my workspace and uh, the writing is the first thing in the morning. And then the rest of the day, it's kind of marinating in there. It's, it's, you know, Hemingway used to say too, that he would work in the morning and then he would leave and like, just let his subconscious have it the rest of the day. And I always really like related to that and understand that. Um, as far as, the reading, the reading is much more random. It's grab it when you can, you know, because of all those other things we're talking about and all those other things you mentioned. Um, so that's why the rereading doesn't really bother me as much because if I'm just picking something up and cracking it open and going at it for, you know, a couple of chapters, I can do that anytime. And it, you know, kind of any, any heartbeat. Um, when I do have, uh, you know, a book that uh, somebody I know or something I'm interested in or something the publishers asked me to read. And yeah, I, I'm a little bit more strenuous, but I think it's the writing is where it's at. That's where the schedule is most um, important. And then everything else you just kind of piece together as you go along the rest of the day. Like, like I think most people do. Michael Ferris Smith is our guest. His brand new book is called Salvage This World. He's joining us here on now Appalachia. And we're going to talk uh, back more about the book here uh, in just a second. And uh, I, I wanted to to kind of move, move the story along, but not give give too much away here, because I wanted to ask you about uh, a, another location that's, that's sort of where the novel the novel finishes up. And we talked about uh, uh, Jesse and, and Jace sort of uh, being on the run because uh, of these stolen keys we were talking about a moment ago, and and Holt's fear that. Uh, uh, Elsa and her men are after him because of the stolen keys. And so uh, we find out that you know, Je uh, Jesse returns with the baby and uh, back to her father. She reconnects with her with her uh, father, who's caring, but a little bit estranged. His name is Wade, and he's an offshore driller who's out of work because of the frequent storms and the bad weather that we were talking about uh, at the very beginning. But as we get to the end of the novel, everybody kind of gets pulled and drawn to uh, uh, this place called The Bottom. Uh, which I just love the name of it, and I thought it was just so fitting for 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 what this place is. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about about what this place is? And and without, I don't want to make you give anything away, but what happens when when everybody kind of gets drawn to that place as we get towards the the end of the story? Because um, I felt like it was almost a character in and of itself um, when we got to that point. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, anybody who knows my work knows that place is a very important thing and it's a character unto its own. And the bottom was really an opportunity to just take it. I think take that next, push the novel to a different level and, and you know, uh, to go somewhere uncomfortable and to take a chance and just to be kind of led wherever you're led and not being afraid of it. And, um, the bottom, you know, I think uh, anybody who's listening to a podcast called Appalachia or, uh, realizes the Southern notion of storytelling. We all have these tall tales and we all have these mythical like places in all our small town stories that you go to or you don't go to or this happened there. Don't go into those woods. I mean, it's just it's I think we're all familiar with that kind of stuff. And the, when the notion of the bottom crossed my mind, I'm like, OK, well, here's. Here it is. It's a chance to wrap uh, almost like some weird small town mythology up with like, uh, 
kind of a nightmare, kind of a ghost story, kind of a tall tale and like a very realistic thing. You know, it's this thing that really lives in Wade's mind largely until he realizes and has this experience when he realizes, well, it actually is a real thing. And so like, as the keys became bigger and more important, I realized that uh, maybe there was something kind of mythological out there, mythical out there, or dreamlike out there that the keys led to. And that's how the bottom came to be. And I think an important part of the bottom too was creating it for the reader through Wade's memories of all the stories he had heard about it over, over the years. I, I think that was a really important part of the writing for me because that's also me um, making sense of it as Wade's thinking and he, as he's remembering all the things he's heard about the bottom o over the years and where it may be or where it may not be. I, you know, I think setting it up almost in the reader's mind before we ever get there to me felt like an important part of making this place come alive as its own character. And, you know, I, I think it's uh, kind of drawing everybody there for a conclusion or for an end uh, just felt like all of a sudden felt like the place we were going all along, even though I had no idea, you know, we were going there until we got there. You know, it, it was one of those things when you realize, when you see the words, the bottom, the first time, that's when it kind of hit me for the, for the first time. So, but it felt inevitable all of a sudden that that's the place we were going. Terrific. Terrific. So as we uh, finish up with you today, Michael, if uh, anyone wants to uh, follow you or, or keep up with you with, with what you're doing and, and your writing and future projects and all of that, where can they find you? How can they keep up with you first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of salvage this world? Uh, well, my website, michaelferrissmith.com has pretty much everything there is to have in terms of the books and um, the interviews and on and on and on. And then I am on both Instagram and Facebook as Michael Ferris Smith. Um, buying the books. Uh, I think you can get the books pretty much anywhere. I would al always encourage people to go to their independent bookstore and support your local neighborhood. Uh, there's also a link on my website to buy a first edition signed copy from my hometown bookstore of square books too. So Support your local indie if you can. If you don't have a local indie, I think you can find it in all those places um, online that I know better than to say the names of. <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. The title of the book is Salvage This World. Our guest today has been author Michael Ferris Smith. It's his sixth novel. He's an award-winning writer. His novels have appeared on so many of the best of the year lists with places like Esquire, NPR, Southern Living, and others. It's a terrific new book. His new book is just fantastic. It's a gritty literary thriller. There's plenty of human drama, uh, plenty of great storytelling and just good writing. And you're going to get into this and not be able to put it down. It's just fantastic. I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy of it and add it to your to be read pile. And yes, it is one of those books that you can take to the beach and enjoy it uh, very, very much or either uh, on the beach or if you're trying to get away from somebody or a group of somebody's on the beach. It's also a great book to take uh, for that purpose. So, Michael, uh, congratulations on your on your new book. It, it's just fantastic. We, uh, highly recommend it. It's terrific and uh, appreciate you coming on the program. And thanks for the conversation. Yeah, of course, Elliot. Thanks. Always a pleasure.
We want to take a moment as we finish up on uh, this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of our program. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes all of these podcasts possible each and every time we bring them to you here on the um, Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, as well as the podcast program itself, Now Appalachia. So thanks, Pam, for all of your work behind the scenes. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.